Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast, Episode 37, Emily Cahoon. Thanks for listening. Well, here's another approach. Seems like these last episodes have been uh, trying different formats, and uh, that's true. Uh, I've been experimenting with a lot of different things here, and uh, who knows, we may just continue experimenting, I don't know, but uh, it's fun to try new things. Uh, Today, I'd like to interview Emily Cahoon. In fact, I interviewed her last week uh, online, and uh, this all stems from an email that I received from Emily uh, a couple months ago. Uh, Let me read a portion to you. Uh, Nick, my name is Emily Cahoon. I'm wrapping up my Ph.D. at Portland State University. We spoke via email a year or so ago about some of my research about the Yellowstone Plume. I saw you at the uh, Geological Society of America meeting uh, in May here in Portland, but never got an opportunity to say hello. Anyway, I've been listening to your podcast recently, and uh, blah, 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 nice things, nice things. And then she says... uh, I had a random random idea, a different topic that is also unique to Oregon. If you'd be at all interested, we could chat about it. And as a follow-up, I was curious if you'd ever consider a one-time co-host. Thanks so much, Emily Cahoon. Well, uh, in the name of experimentation, um, I didn't do much more with Emily than that emailed a couple times, just said, sounds great, let's just save it for the podcast. So I've never met Emily. Uh, We set this up, we communicated uh, via Zoom, that's kind of a version of Skype or FaceTime, which I had not used before. And um, not only did uh, the little 30-minute interview go quite well, seems to me, uh, we had a video recording of it. So in addition to listening to this audio interview with Emily, uh, you're certainly welcome to go to my YouTube channel. Nick Zentner is my name. I've got a YouTube channel that's just got a few videos on it because uh, uh, I'm lame. Uh, But if you listened to an earlier podcast episode, you know that story about my lameness. So anyway, I'm I'm trying to put new stuff on that YouTube channel and uh, you can... Uh, kind of watch our uh, casual uh, conversation. But if you're audio only, I respect that. I respect you. And uh, here is, without further ado, Emily Cahoon. Okay, well, let's just do this. I'm going to just record an intro and then we'll just go right to you, okay? Cool. And is it going to be like, are you going to ask me any questions or is it just kind of a... Well, I'm definitely going to ask you questions, yeah. Okay, perfect, perfect. (laughs) try to steer you along and uh um i uh, purposely haven't read much of well i'll say that actually so let's okay okay, okay. I'll, I'll let you go ahead great hello from ellensburg washington usa this is the nick zentner geology podcast episode 37 emily cahoon thanks for listening emily did i pronounce your name correctly you got it you nailed oh, it cahoon no. no l sometimes people like to do that but you got it Wonderful. Well, thanks for joining us today. Let's get right into this. Um, who are you and uh, what have you been doing the last couple of years? Oh, who am I? That's a, well, <laughs> lots. <laughs> um, so yeah, my name is Emily Cahoon. Um, I'm from Boston originally. Uh, no accent though. I think that went away a couple years ago. Sure. Um, 
I went to Delaware, University of Delaware Blue Hens for my undergrad, geology focused, um, went straight to my master's at Washington State University in Pullman. So just what, a couple hours east of you guys. Totally. Um, and then, you know, as most people do, they get a little maybe burnt out from school. <laughs> so I took uh, about three years and worked for an environmental consulting business as a geologist, but not doing kind of, I would say, hardcore geology mm-hmm. um, on the East Coast for about, yeah, about three years. And maybe halfway into that was just kind of like, you know what, this is great, but I don't think this is what I want to do for life. And so I took a little bit of a leap of faith and decided that, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back. I'm going to get the PhD. So okay. I applied to, I don't remember, a few schools and um, decided on Portland State. So I'm now a uh, PhD candidate at Portland State University. I maybe shouldn't say this in public, but I'm about probably six months away from defending, I hope. <laughs> um, hopefully my uh, PhD advisor also agrees with that. Sure. And uh, yeah, so I'm just kind of now applying for postdocs and some tenure track positions across the board. I know Central had one. Yep. Um, and yeah, so I'm finishing up my research now and hopefully in the next couple months moving on to, well, bigger and I don't know if better, but bigger things. Good. Well, let's get right to the research then. Um, I, I certainly know of your work. I don't think I'm totally up to date on your work. Um, so you kind of had not only an overview of your thesis that I saw online, like a little three-minute pitch on... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a good That was a good video. That was fun. You did a nice job with that. And then you emailed me and thought you might have a little uh, gimmick or something that's kind of hands-on that would kind of bring people in, these sunstones. Is that what you mentioned? Yes, I did. Um, I just figured there's something that, you know, even people that don't have maybe a solid base... They never took a geology class. When you think about gems, people get really excited. Um, And so it's one of those things that I think both for geologists and people who maybe just either rock hound or just interested in kind of cool looking minerals, they're different. It's a great book. Yeah, let's start with the gem, actually. So I've never heard of sunstones. I, I did a very limited Google search just to see a couple pictures. So um, where can you find these? Uh, what kind of market is there? Is this uh, three people out there? Is there is this a huge deal? Oh, yeah. Um, so sunstones, and um, for, those, for those listening, they are also known as, um, they're kind of copper-enriched feldspar crystals. Okay. Um, and so feldspar, plagioclase, um, or the, the plagioclase variety of feldspar, and you could kind of think about it like feldspar, you could think about like a fruit, and then plagioclase is like an apple. So plagioclase is just a more specific uh, variety of feldspar, and these sunstones are only found in Oregon, hmm. um, at least that have copper in them. There have been rumblings of other places in the world that they exist, um, but so far, they've really only been identified in Oregon, and that's why they're our state gem. Okay. And I think that was adopted in the mid-'80s or something by the state. Um, they're found in three different locations throughout Oregon, um, 
kind of near, I'd say, southwest of the John Day area. Okay. And um, if anyone has a map in front of them, it's kind of like central Oregon. Sure. And then about kind of all the way down, um, maybe about 80 miles south as the crow flies. Okay. So not anywhere near the coast, um, not anywhere up by the gorge, just kind of central and south Oregon. And so how do you know if you have one of those? Do you stumble onto it or you're looking in some sort of uh, mine or something like that? What's, what's Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple people that, um, that own these mines, and thankfully some of them are open to the public. Mm-hmm. So you can actually go. It's a great place for, um, I don't know at what age kid, but um, it's definitely some of these places are family friendly and they encourage you know, coming out there and spending a couple of days, they have places to camp. Um, but you know, if you've found one, they're all, they're pretty much at the surface, which is great from a mining perspective because yeah. this isn't, you're not kind of really, uh, you know, digging in deep. This isn't like a huge open pit mm-hmm. operation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the rock that they're hosted in is kind of, uh, it's really crumbly, really friable. So you don't need to have a, a pickaxe and um, a chisel or anything like that for the most part. They just kind of fall out of the, the hosting rock, which is, which is nice. And you know if you found one because they're, they can range in size, but I would say smallest, maybe the size of your thumbnail-ish. Okay. And some of them can get maybe the, maybe the size of your whole thumb, a couple, couple centimeters in length and they are often red. And so if you've found anywhere in Oregon or someone's maybe gifted it to you, um, a kind of a clearish, maybe yellow stone in terms of its rim, but the center is a, is a reddish or a pink color. You probably have a sunstone and they can come in a variety of colors. So some of them are clear Uh and the clearest ones, if faceted correctly, I mean, they're, gorgeous you you know they're not going to get confused maybe with a diamond but um they're they can be very attractive looking and then um because of the copper that's in them they can have this reddish tinge or what some people will call shiller and it actually looks if you look really closely like there's almost little um pennies almost inside wow so there, it's pretty incredible. And you don't always even need, you know, a microscope or a magnifying glass or anything like that. You can just see it actually with your, sure. with your naked eye. That's how, that's how large they are. Um, and so this, these Schiller ones are the ones that are sort of the most prized. And it's cool because it makes them really unique. You know, every single, they're all different. It's kind of like a snowflake. Yeah. The copper inclusions in each one yeah. are all a little bit different. And um, in some cases, there might be even a little bit of green in there. So red, pinkish, the shiller that looks like there's little, you know, pennies in them. So it looks kind of metallic to even, to even green. So what happened? Why is that such a unique thing in that location? You know what, man, that's the question. Uh (laughs) That's what we're, (laughs) that's what we're trying to figure out. I mean, so this thing, um, my PhD research has focused a lot on the Columbia river basalts, which I know you've kind of talked about in various episodes mm-hmm. at length. Yes. And so for the most part, these things are only hosted in Columbia River basalts. Okay. Um, so we have an idea about maybe the age, but the question really is, when the heck did the copper get in there? Yeah. 
did the copper come in when the crystal was forming at some some depth in a magma chamber? Mm-hmm. Or is this something that as these things were already almost at the surface, there was some hydrothermal activity that managed to get the copper into these um, plagioclase or feldspar crystals? And the thing that's so odd, and this is why we don't really see them anywhere else, is copper doesn't want typically to go into a feldspar crystal. So that's what makes it so unique is that trying to think about what sort of magmatic or just general conditions that would make copper go into a feldspar, it's weird. Right. Well, it's not like there's a ton of copper in the the Columbia River basalts anyway, right? I mean... No, there is a... It's, it is a little bit... At least a little bit higher than what you would expect. Okay. Um, but not not too much. Yeah. Um, you're talking in most of these Columbia River basalts, like at maximum, maybe 300, 350 parts per million okay. of copper. Huh. So that's not... It's a little bit more than an average flood basalt province, yeah. Um, but not anything dramatic. I mean, we're not talking in weight percentages sure. or anything like that. Um, well, yeah, go ahead. But I will say that in, and I don't, I don't know that this has been discussed, but with a lot of flood basalt provinces worldwide, mm-hmm. there's often thought to be a, a root of the flood basalt province that never made it to the surface. Mm. So when these, you know, we've talked about when these things erupt, not all of it makes it out. There's still a portion that's sort of um, sequestered left in the crust at some depth. I didn't know that. And those often have a lot of metals. Okay. So if anyone has been to, um, they're, they're, they, they're often called complexes. Uh-huh. Um, the Duluth complex in Minnesota, yeah. the uh, Stillwater complex in uh, Montana. I see. The... Scare guard intrusion, I believe that's in Greenland, mm-hmm. I think. So these are all places that over time, this intrusive portion of the flood basalt province has now, you know, everything above it has weathered away. And we now see the root of it at the surface. And they often have metals of interest. So you're, you're totally, I mean, these flood basalt provinces themselves don't often have elevated copper, but you would expect the root at some depth, which now, of course, here in Oregon and Washington is, is not exposed. It's, you know, probably a couple kilometers down. Sure. But that could have some metals in it, like copper. Well, I, but it's still, you know, how the copper's getting in there is questionable. Totally. Well, I want to go there. I want to basically go in the direction of, of your research and, and some of the problems you've been working on. I, it hasn't been research on the sunstones. I know that. So it's a, it's a more, more regional uh, and important uh, set of ideas. But before we leave the sunstones, do you have any final thoughts there? Like, why is it so friable? Is there, is there, some, is there some connection there? Is it just because it's at the surface that it's, it's crumbly like You that? know, yeah, that's a great question. And I think, so the rock itself and for people listening to sort of maybe imagine it's the sunstones are hosted in this sort of dark um, gray reddish material. Um, anyone that's been out to any sort of like volcanically active area and you get these darker rocks that have a lot of holes or vesicles in them. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then some of them even have, they've weathered down so much, they've kind of broken down that they're almost clay in some places. So they're really easy to get, get out of the rock. And this has led people to think that, well, maybe the copper got into these feldspar crystals from more hydrothermal, like hot waters percolating through the subsurface because the rocks are kind of beat to crap. Yep. They don't look that good. Right. So maybe the process that's doing this is something that's closer to the surface. And that's why the rock looks like junk. Um, but, you know, that's an idea. But then some of the data that we have don't necessarily support yeah. this, this theory that it's um, that the copper kind of got in there from more of these surficial conditions. Um, so, you know, that's one of the things that we just, we just don't know. Um, but I would say final thoughts. Um, they're beautiful. They're super, yeah. you know, they're unique to Oregon. Um, and it's kind of one thing that I've found that's been kind of interesting. Um, anyone that might ever look to purchase one of these is that in the traditional gem world, if you have an inclusion in a uh, gemstone, mm-hmm. especially people are probably familiar with this with diamonds. If diamonds have inclusions, it makes them less valuable. So traditionally in gemology, if it has an inclusion, doesn't matter what it is, it reduces sort of its its value. Mm-hmm. And But with sunstones, that's what makes them so unique uh, is that every single one is different. So it's been kind of this interesting thing learning about um, gemology because something that makes the sunstone so unique also reduces their value in a lot of people's eyes. So um, I would just say for anyone ever interested in looking at them, know that the copper, every, every single little shimmer that you see in there is unique to that specific stone. Love it. Oregon sunstones. Who knew? A few people. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? Um, well, we've got, we've got plenty of time left, uh, 15 minutes or something like that. And I would love to learn from you about what you've been doing in Oregon with the Columbia River Salts in general. And as I understand it, you one of your questions was, are the Picture Gorge basalts uh, telling a different story than the rest of the, the, the Yeah. And, and, and uh, so can you get us into it maybe just with kind of the, the, the initial questions and, uh, and how you've come along with those questions? Yeah, so my, um, for the PhD, we kind of split it into different chunks mm-hmm. um, in terms of different questions we want to answer. And so that question of how the picture gorge basalts really, um, how do they fit into the CRBs? has been kind of looked at or I've been looking at it from an age uh, location and then a little bit of a little bit of geochemistry. Um, And for, for everyone listening, the Columbia river basalts, we break them into four different kind of units based on age where they erupted um, and mostly geochemistry. And when we do that, we get the Imnaha basalts, which erupted, um, you know, kind of Eastern, Washington, uh, Eastern Oregon, the Steens basalt, which erupted out of Steens Mountain in southeastern Oregon, the Grand Ronde basalt, which is most of the volume of the CRBs, and then kind of what's been the the odd man out has been the Picture Gorge basalts, mm-hmm. and that's been partly due to the fact that they're the smallest in volume, okay. um, and then geochemically, people have argued 
you know what, they're a little bit different. Maybe they're not entirely related to the whole province. So we first approached it from an age perspective to make sure that, okay, that, you know, the picture gorge basalts are indeed the same age. Um, and what we found, which is pretty exciting, I just had a paper accepted in geology last right. month oh. and it should be um, published. Yeah, I was very excited. Um, yeah. I think it, it'll be published in February or March. Right. Um, so it's in press right yeah. now. Um, and what we found is that the picture gorge basalts are actually the oldest of oh, the CRBs. No kidding. Which is completely not what people had kind of thought. Um, and so they're, they're the oldest, if not right at the same time as Steen's basalt. So they're erupting kind of um, at the same time. And what this really does is expand the footprint of where all of these lavas were erupting. You know, people have said, okay, well, they're erupting out of southeastern Washington or southeastern Oregon. But now that we have sort of the earliest ages in two not extremely different places in Oregon, but really, you know, different enough. It really expands sort of this magmatic footprint or where all of these early lavas were erupting out of. What are the dates of the earliest lavas? The the oldest date we have is 17.23 million. Okay. Is that coming from something you can get a zircon out of right below the basalts? Or or is it Right out of the basalt. Great, great question. Um, so there has been a lot of work done at Princeton um, by a by a number of people who've been looking at the, these inner bedded um, felsic explosive tufts in between each basalt unit, and they've been doing zircon work. I know it took them a lot of time to crush up these tufts and be able to find enough of these zircons that they could date. Um, but what I, I've been doing is actually dating the basalts themselves. Okay. And for basalts, people used to date these actually plagioclase crystals inside the basalts. Um, But a team at Oregon State University has really refined the method by which we can actually date the basalt itself. And I would argue it's a much more reliable date. Because sometimes when you date larger crystals in a lava flow, there's the potential that that crystal formed a couple thousand, hundreds of thousands of of years Mm -hmm. before the lava actually erupted. Mm -hmm. So I tend to think that the ground mass ages of the basalt themselves is a little more indicative of the actual timing surrounding eruption. So we've been focused on argon-argon aging, or dating, um, argon-argon ages of the basalts. Okay. And the process by which we have done this, let me tell you, it is, it can be painstaking. Uh There's a lot of, lot of lab prep. Um, And with this, these things, you know, you spend weeks in the lab and then you got to wait for the samples to go to a nuclear reactor and then they come back. So it's, it's can be a six month process wow. of, of dating these things. But yeah, the oldest age we have 17.23 million. And the youngest age that I got was about 16.06 million. Oh, all within the picture gorge? All within the picture gorge. Oh, good Lord. So it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. Um, and that's about 14, 15 different ages. 
I will say we have this kind of conspicuous gap in ages Mm -hmm. um, between about 16.2 and 16.5. So between about 16.2 million and 16.5 million, we don't really have many ages. Yeah. Um, so that's a little, you know, it could be, that could be a sampling bias. I don't know. Right. Um, but yeah, definitely. I mean, we're looking now at a million point two years of eruption just for the picture gorge. Um, broken out is the picture gorge just kind of historically because of its geography or why can't you just take some of that and lump it in with the steams and some of that and lump it in with the, Grand Rod, if it if if, if the age is so uh, across the board, it must be a ge- geochemical thing that makes it its own unit. Yeah, so it's mostly ge- geochemistry um, okay. that has sort of differentiated it, um, and it is the most similar to Steen's basalt. Okay. So now that we're thinking, okay, it's roughly around the same time, and geochemically, it's most similar to Steen's. What what really does distinguish it? from Steens. Yeah. And that comes into play with a lot of trace elements. Okay. So with your major elements, it can be difficult to distinguish, but with trace elements, and we're talking some of these weird elements at the bottom of the periodic table right. Um, right. that, that begin to distinguish it. And, but there are, there are some slight differences. And so when you think about where they're erupting from and also timing, you start to wonder, you know, could this be some, um, zonation or the early, the fact that the earliest flows actually had a little bit of a different geochemical signature. You can imagine with the, these magmas being stored in the crust, yeah. the first ones that erupt are likely going to be a little bit different from the ones that erupt later on once sort of these different eruptive areas and vents have really established themselves. Yeah. So we think that maybe it's just the earliest eruptions have this just slightly different geochemical signature from from later portions of the eruption and that's something we're still trying to figure out sure uh well that gives us a good feel for kind of the the sample collection and the process and getting the ages and gives us a little taste for that but i'm i'm assuming one of the bigger questions involved in all this is is do we tie everything to Yellowstone? Is, you know, is, you know, can we talk about how the, the, the origin of that material, what kind of depth, et cetera? Uh, we've got a subducting plate nearby. Like, are we, are we getting a hole in the, we only got 10 minutes left. <laughs> <laughs> this um, is a, that's a lifelong conversation. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, but has that been, in the in the outset, or at least where you are now with your study, um, are you trying to tie it or not tie it to the simple Yellowstone story? Because as as you may be aware, we're we're seeing more and more of a Yellowstone story, even with a bunch of ash fall that's up here in central Washington, tied more to the supervolcanoes doing their thing in southern Idaho. And so that's been one of my main stories, has been so much more has a Yellowstone story, even in central Washington, uh, compared to what everybody assumed was just being downwind of the Cascades or tied to the Cascades somehow. So you can go anywhere yeah. you want with that, but but where 
what kind of regional implications are you seeing from from your For, yeah you know what that's a that's a great question and to be to be honest i think at this point most most of the the literature and people still working on this would say yeah it's it's yellowstone the the complicating factor as you as you alluded to there is the fact that yeah we have this this Farallon plate that's that's kind of still sitting underneath um, the Western U.S. and I think the real question is how that it has interacted with the plume and you know there have been a lot of people that have tried to unravel that story. Um, Vic Camp down at um, San Diego State. Um, he's done a lot of work looking at this, um, Nikki Moore, who's worked on the Steens has, has thought some about that. I mean, there are, there are a lot of people that have thought about how this, how the plate sitting under there, um, could be interacting with the plume and how that's affecting geochemical signatures we're seeing in the flood basalt. Um, but I would say the plume is, the plume is the culprit. Uh, that is most likely the source of most of this stuff. And flood basalt provinces are often correlated with, with plumes. Um, but I think the role of the plate has definitely added complications that we still don't fully understand. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so when we talked about all these different subunits of the, of the Columbia River, um, one of them is the Grand Ron basalt. That, and this is the one you see all up and down the gorge and makes up most of sort of what we see at the surface. But the Grand Ronde basalt, interestingly, is not a traditional basalt. It's more of a basaltic andesite. Um, the silica is a little bit higher, which is sort of how we distinguish between these different rock types. And, you know, that's kind of, that's one of the curious things is, if this is from a plume and this is the bulk of the volume, having a silica content a little bit higher in the Grand Ron is a little weird. Yeah. Um, and so that is, that is a complicating factor. And, you know, maybe that has something to do with, with the slab, but I would say, yeah, the, the plume is, the plume is what we're, we're thinking. And there are, you know, all these different variables that come into play, like, like the slab and even like the continued subduction um, further west. And so I think that's going to take decades, probably, you know, everyone has their little piece of the puzzle. And then I'm, I'm hopeful that in, in years to come, someone will be able to put it really all together and say, yeah. you know, answer some of these questions and maybe more clearly tie uh the plume and the slab sort of to the whole story. I like it. Uh, so to finish up, I'm sure you were doing some field work in some beautiful places. Would you have a recommendation or two for me and oh. listeners? I mean, I'm a Washington guy. I don't know central and Southern Oregon very well at all. Where can we go? Oh yeah. So um, it depends if you're more in the mood for, for trees and uh, maybe wading in some rivers Anywhere along the, the John Day River, um, there's some amazing, uh, actually fishing mm-hmm. and just general rafting. Uh, there's a little place. It's not actually a town, 
called Service Creek, Oregon. Um, they run a, there's a little rafting company that runs out of Service Creek if you just put it into Google Maps. Um, and there's plenty of places to camp, both uh, National Forest and then um, Bureau of Land Management mm-hmm. and a, a number of private places to camp as well. But anywhere kind of between Service Creek and then um, Kimberly, Oregon, where the John Day River runs, um, lots of places to camp, raft, fish. It's beautiful um, out there. And then if you're looking maybe to go a little more uh, rugged, let's say, less water, less trees, <laughs> and you go down to actually Plush, Oregon, there are places to camp at some of these sunstone mines. Um, one being in particular the Dust Devil Mine near Plush. They have places to camp. You can kind of you can pick your own sunstones. And that's also a beautiful country, but it's, uh, there's definitely no trees and you want to bring water if you go out there. Um, and then kind of anywhere in between John Day and Burns, Oregon, there's a highway that runs in between John Day and Burns, Oregon, highway 395. And that's all national forest land. Lots of, uh, you can pretty much camp anywhere. And, uh, there's even a fire lookout. Um, there's a couple old fire lookouts between those two towns. Some of them just have great views. They're still manned. Uh, but some of them are no longer manned, but you can actually rent them out and spend the night. Nice. And those are that they definitely book up well in advance, but those are some, some cool places to, to definitely check out. I've found throughout my travels in Oregon, I have developed a new hobby and that is visiting towns that have populations of under like 500 people and um <laughs> i know and taking photos of their post offices oh, there you go. because a lot of these places these little towns i mean to be a town they you know they still need to get mail sure. and that's been kind of a fun little thing with field work is visiting some of these small towns and you know just trying to get a, a feel for what life is like there and uh, visiting the post offices because usually the the town population is there's there's people there so it's been kind of this interesting weird hobby that I've developed. You know it's it it is a unique area. I've I've just driven through uh, kind of regularly over the years the Oregon Outback essentially, and uh, it's got a flavor all its own. And I I assume you were out there for well wait now you weren't really mapping or were you mapping were you out there for weeks at a time or were you more going out and just kind of spending a couple nights and collecting samples um probably some combination of the two Uh i didn't do a lot of traditional mapping Mm -hmm. but i would be out there for um anywhere up to maybe 10 12 nights so yeah, it could, it could be, yeah, it could be a while. Some, I will say I have done it where I just drove out and did one night and drove back. And yeah. let me tell you, that's not ideal. It's a lot of driving. Right. Um, yeah. So spending usually a week to two weeks max out there. And I, I mean, it's, it's beautiful and you know, you're going, you're kind of, you know, you're not showering. Yeah. <laughs> There's, you know, cause you're, you're just staying in, in a lot of times just in a tent, you know, somewhere in the forest. So, um, you know, finding a nice river to hop in, or if you go down to Burns, there are plenty of uh, kind of RV parks, and usually you can grab a shower there for a couple bucks, uh, load up on gas, you know, maybe get another six pack, ice, the essentials, right, and then uh, get back, get back on the road. <laughs> Sounds like a dream. 
it's it's beautiful out there and you never have to worry about rain for the most part in the summer you got it which is nice emily this has been a treat i i really appreciate you emailing me and just suggesting we do this and this is a first for the podcast to just kind of do an interview on zoom here i had to teach myself how to do this but um it was a blast i want to thank you very much for for sharing all this information and your enthusiasm for what's going on out there yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, hopefully, uh, listeners were not um, or were somewhat intrigued and might, you know, in the summer, uh, if they venture out to Eastern Oregon, maybe you know, check out some sunstone mines. And if if nothing else, it's it's always good to talk science. And uh, yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Great. I appreciate it. Thank you, Emily, and thank you, visitors and listeners of the podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Goodbye. <laughs>